You all got the cue. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, 2 Peter is the book we will be covering this morning. If you're new or visiting as a guest, welcome. My name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here. You are joining us on our tail end of our series through the Bible in 53 weeks, Silas. Not a year, 53 weeks. So uh, we are in 2 Peter today, and God willing, on January 1st, we will wrap up the book of Revelation. So it's been a quick pace through the Bible. If you have any questions about the church, you can reach out to us online, unionaz.org. There's a connect card on the front page of our website, or if you prefer pen and ink and paper, we have connect cards in the back, or if you're more of a face-to-face, then say, hey, let's get coffee, and I'd love to get coffee, and so would Anthony or one of our elders with you. As far as announcements go, we have a handful today. Uh, first is that tomorrow at 6 p.m. we are scheduled to have our Christmas party here in this room, wrapping gifts for foster kids, uh, eating pizza and pasta and salad from two mamas, and having Christmas uh, trivia and a ugly sweater contest for those that uh, want to participate in that for rewards. Um, and I am also aware at the same time there's supposed to be a storm coming. Now, I've lived in Prescott my entire life. So that could mean we get a foot of snow. That could mean it looks like this tomorrow. Um, You know, they say, uh, what is it? Red in the morning, sailors take warning. Red at night, sailors delight. So that's what we're going to go by. Um, How many of you, you're like, it snows, I'll plow through, I'll be here? Yeah? How many of you are like, it snows, I'm not coming, because, all right. Okay. I think that was a, a majority would come. And, we, and it's not that we took a picture we should have for accountability purposes. <laughs> and we call you. Katie, you tentatively raised your hand. It was tentative. Where are you? Um, so what I'll say is this. Just keep an eye on your email. We'll send an email out in the morning. There's a possibility we can postpone it till, till next week, but... Uh, Also, let's get these gifts wrapped and out and distributed. So the plan is tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, 6 to 8, we'll be here. Dinner, sporadic, all of that. That's the plan. But again, check your email tomorrow for confirmation of that. Um, Christmas Eve is Saturday. We are going to have a 4 p.m. family worship gathering here. Candlelight, it should be about an hour-ish. I promise it will be uh, the shortest sermon that I preach all year. And, And you have my word on that. Uh, So 4 p.m. and then no Sunday morning service on Christmas Day. And then financial update. Um, And I'll just go through this quickly. We do this every single month, typically on the first Sunday of the month. And I was out last week, so I guess I'm tasked with it today. Our monthly budget for 2022 has been $20,000 a month. In November, by God's grace, your generosity, $23,623.98. So again, thank you. If you have any questions about the finances, uh, feel free to ask. That's the long and short of it. I'm going to invite Denise up, and she is going to read for us 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 11, and then I'll preach and we'll see what God has for us. Thank you. Good morning. Okay. This is under Confirm Your Calling and Election. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, whoops, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, then keep you from being, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be, you, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Thank you, Denise. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our hearts and attention to your word, we ask that you would speak, that you would clarify, that you would challenge, that you would um, grow us and transform us, that we would see Jesus a bit more clearly and enjoy, follow him a bit more fully today. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, God, our strength and redeemer. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. amen. Well, today we are looking at Peter's farewell address. It has a dual category for you Bible nerds. Uh, first, it's an epistle. That is, it is a letter to people, and it has a subcategory of testament, meaning he is speaking about what he has seen, heard, and experienced. Like the majority of the New Testament, it's written to a people that are facing peril. And while there are some divisions around authorship, if you want to nerd out on that, let's get coffee. Um, I'm just going with, it's Peter. He's nearing the end of his life at the hands of Nero. And the early church is facing tension of life in the midst of the world. And I think it's one of those things where any time difficulty confronts us and meets us and punches us in the nose, it's a surprise. But it's also, you go, oh yeah, Jesus promised this, right? In John 16, he says, I've spoken these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. Other translations, trial, trouble. But be of good cheer. I, Jesus says, has overcome the world. And so it should come as no surprise at any point in time when God's people face peril, trouble, and trial. Jesus has promised this. 
And what I've found helpful in this text is that it roots us, it reminds us of that, and it, it can, if we look at it um, with eyes of faith, it can generate hope in our lives. There's some core fundamental questions of life that, that Peter drills down into them. And here's what we're going to focus on today for your alliterated title. Number one, transformation. Can we change? Can we change? Can you change? Can I change? If so, how? Transformation. Can we change? Second thing, temptation. What leads us astray? What hurdles and roadblocks exist in our lives that get us off of the path we are supposed to be on in life? And then finally, the triumphant return of Jesus. The question being, how will all of this mess get worked out? And Peter addresses this in a lot more. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. The first chapter brings out one of the greatest promises that we have to return to in, and I was thinking, brand to the front of our brains. And it is this, that we have everything we need. We have everything we need. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us, God's people, all things that pertain to life and godliness. You and I have everything we need. Not everything we want. What a curse that would be. Have you ever done a, a, even a cursory glance of those folks that have the curse of winning the lottery? What that does to a life? It's horrible most times. And I know I and most of us will go, yeah, because they aren't as smart as I would be with all that. And while that may be true, yes, Getting everything you want is often a curse, not a blessing. We have everything we need. And this is key and critical to understanding the Christian life. And there's a distinction here that I want to bring out that is um, in tension with and in some ways opposed to what is being popularized today. What is being popularized today is this. Not you have everything you need, but you are everything you need. You are enough in and of yourself. And I want to tread lightly here because I believe there is a needed correction in a culture of shame towards recovering roots of the image of God within us. That every life from womb to tomb has dignity, value, worth, yes, and amen. But what makes me nervous is hearing everything you need is within you. And I go, kind of. Because at least in me, like, there's a lot of issues in there too. And within me, there's a pretty big enemy against me. To quote the poet John Donne, uh, no man is an island. No human can live fully detached from our utter need of God and each other. 
And I know some of us are jaded and frustrated because of the slowness of transformation in life, seemingly a backwards trajectory life has taken for you because of choices you've made or things that have been done to you. And so the question is, how can we change? How can we change? If we have everything we need, how can we change? It's hard, is it not? I, I know some of you, like, I don't know, you know, type A, give it an Enneagram number, I don't know. You, you've, you're like, yeah, absolutely. There's seven habits for highly effective people. Duh. And there's atomic habits. And I've read that book too. And there's uh, Time Management for Mortals. That was one of the most popular books this year by Oliver Burkhead or something like that. 4,000 Weeks, where he takes like all sorts of influences from philosophy, Christianity, Buddhism, and kind of weaves together this um, new way of looking at, at time management and effectiveness and what that all means. Some of you are like, yeah, absolutely. Give me 30 days. Change anything. I think most of us, though, when we slow down enough, when we reflect enough, which can be hard to do, and I hope we're able to do that a little bit today, we can go, change is hard. Frustratingly slow. That there's things that have been in your life, maybe as long as you can remember, that have gnawed at you, set you back, frustrated you. What do you do with that? There's one pastor, Pete Scazzaro, he's got a line I love where he says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. <laughs> is change possible? Scripture is telling us we have everything we need. How? It is through his power that he has gifted us, granted to us all things that pertain, that are needed for life and godliness. I say, oh, that's a great promise. How do we access that? It is through, he says, the knowledge of him who has called us. First thing that stunts our growth is we attempt to do it all on and that's where the myth of you being enough, yes, you are worthy of dignity and value, regardless of your story, age, ethnicity, gender, any of that. Yes, equal dignity, value, and worth for every human being made in the image of God. Yes and amen. But because of the fall, we have a great need. And we're able to access power to change, not solo in and of ourselves, but through Jesus with his people. It's Jesus who has granted to us these great and precious promises and invites us to partake in life with him. That he, Jesus, has delivered us. We have given, been given an escape from the world, our own flesh and the devil. And because of that now, we can walk forward, grow and change. How? He says, well... And he lists out seven things. Again, biblical authors are very intentional with the numbers that we have and in, in use. So seven things. And again, it's, it's not a, a, a perfectly hacked morning routine. 
It's not um, just getting your email inbox down to zero, though, again, big fan of that. What does he say? For this very reason, because we have access to power through Jesus, through the knowledge of Jesus, through living with Jesus, we can then add to faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. Self-control, steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. The ultimate mark and measure of growth for a follower of Jesus is love. It's not Bible trivia. It's not outward appearance. It is love. Peter Davids in his commentary on 2 Peter says, the important point to keep in mind that love is a virtue, not an emotion. Q, isn't it DC talk? Love is a verb, that old song. Christians are not encountered to feel warmly about each other, even like one another. They are instructed to act lovingly toward one another. Thus, Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 speaks about what love does, how it acts, not how it feels. And so to see transformation and growth under that framework, that rubric, gives us a different lens through which we are to look at it. If love is the mark. And in case you didn't know what love looks like, well, Jesus shows us, and I want to read to you a section from 1 Corinthians 13. Not going to be on the screen, so it's not Bethany's fault, it's mine. He says, love is patient. And you, you see this in Jesus. When you read the Gospels, Paul here is describing Christ. Love is patient. It is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Dude, those every single time. For me, that list is like, oh, it is not irritable or resentful. Anybody else struggle with dad rage? No, just me? Okay. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is the lens through which we are to see life, transformation, and growth. And this is not the lens through which we are given uh, help in growth, right? It's what, December 11th, so you started out this year, and many of us were like, well, it's going to lose 15 pounds this year, and I'm going to read this many books, and it's like December 11th, and that 15 pounds you're going to lose is now 25, (laughs) and you wanted to read 25 books, and since we aren't Well, maybe we'll count comics, and you're like, so I got 24 to go. And we can, some of us, reach the end of the year and go, because we look at growth and transformation through the wrong lens. And again, if, if you know me, I love goals. I love accomplishing things. I love a challenge. Like, man, big time. So I'm, again, all the, all the self-help books, all the Brene Brown, all the things, I've 
read them, tried to implement some of them. Like, I'm not, so, so just so you know. However, in this world, is our lens for all of that often wrong? We often look in the mirror as though we're supposed to be some cosmic like self-improvement project, and that's not what God is after. The world which says you are how you look, you are what you wear, you are what you weigh, you are what you drive, you are your salary, you are all of these outward things that we know intrinsically at the deepest part of our being could all be taken away in an instant, Scripture comes to us with some startling and good news. That's not who you are, and that's not the pathway to growth and transformation. The Christian mark of maturity is a growth that leads to love of God, of neighbor, and of our enemies. God, neighbor, enemies. Most of us do okay with like, yeah, I'm pretty good with God. Like him, love him, send Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. That's great. Neighbor, well... (laughs) Who's my neighbor? Enemy? Who do you just, again, mark it through. Who, who do you resent? Who, irritable and resentful. Like, don't be those things. That's not love. Who comes to mind? What people group, political party, whatever. Who is that for you? God says that's the measure of Christian maturity is loving him, neighbor, and enemies. Yeah, I, I have to push against much of the way in which Christian culture has taken self-improvement and self-help and baptized it to make Christian growth and maturity simply about behavior modification and information accumulation. So much of Christian growth and maturity today is marked by books that you read, conferences that you go to, authors or speakers that you know, and, and modifying your behavior. Don't do those bad things and do some of those good things. And most pastors will go, that includes tithing to the church, okay? Because we have a vested interest in these things. So we put that real up high. And most of us go through this life just feeling guilty and riddled with shame and like we and it will never be enough because we're living out of the wrong framework. The gospel goes to the heart. It's not simply about just believing or just having the right set of doctrinal facts or tidbits or just doing certain things. It's about who we are becoming. I believe God is most concerned with who we are becoming. And from that, behavior flows. From that, a life is lived. Dallas Willard, you want to look at some powerfully profound things on growth and transformation. Dallas Willard, he was a philosopher at USC, um, wrote some really good stuff. Here's, Here's from one of his talks. He says, if we aren't careful 
we live with a gospel that leaves our inner life untouched and merely makes sure we have the right marking somehow, the right brand, so it'll be clear we belong to the right herd. But Christ comes to us and says to us, let me transform you inside. Let me take all of those fears, all of those angers, all of that contempt, all of that lust that eats at your soul and replace it with worship of God and a love of others that will make your entire life sweet and strong because you'll be standing with me in the kingdom of God. I don't know about you. I, I heard that this week, and that's what my heart wants. And as I look at Scripture, and as we've traveled through this book, that's what we are to be about. I want to grow in sweetness and in strength because I'm in the kingdom of God with a sweet and strong Savior. Adding to faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, that we are a people that are focused on who we are becoming. And so therefore we can be vulnerable with the, the things, the people, the habits, all of that that lead us astray. But transformation happens by idols being replaced with love. And we need a holistic framework around all of this. We need all of the things, care, counseling, church people, therapy for some of us. Like, we need all of the things, the books, the resources, all of that. Put that all around, yes, but at its core, it is about learning Christ, who he is and how he's shaping us to be salt and light in the world today. And in that, there's a promise that these qualities these inner dispositions would be ours in increasing that that leads to an effective and fruitful life. And so may I remind us all of this beautiful process that salvation comes in an instant, that Jesus in his power brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, from alienation to adoption. It happens like that, in his grace and in his power, and it takes a lifetime to learn. And so we are free then to live in this bravely with community, with friends, with our family, when professionals need to be involved. And I could and kind of want to, but not spend way more time on this, I'll send you a couple articles. There's one called The Four G's of the Gospel where we uh, replace truth and worship of God for idols by Tim Chester, helpful. Another article I found from Dallas Willard this week. Um, but I, I'll simply sum up this with a, another quote that I just go, <gasps> that has so shaped me in, in my view of life and church together from Ray Ortland. His, his formula is this, gospel plus safety, plus time. It's what everyone needs. A lot of gospel, and a lot of safety, and a lot of time. So he defines gospel, 
Good news for broken people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. There's so much there. Safety. A non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone. No cornering anyone. No shaming. But respect and sympathy and listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Time. No pressure. Not even self-imposed pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry, because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. God is patient. This is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we are finally free to grow. That's what we are attempting. Imperfectly. But hopefully increasingly as we go. And I look at that and you go, great, there's power and there's promises and there's all this hope and change and transformation and all of these things. Utopia? Like, cue the soundtrack, live happily ever after? No. Remember the overlap of the ages already? Yes, it's all here. Not yet, because it's not yet fully, finally, the kingdom of God. There's this tension in between, and that's where we recognize temptations internally and temptations externally. As in many of the first century letters, there's people that are twisting the message, tempting to turn people away to something else. Here's the three main objections and heresies that Peter was addressing. Number one, it's a fairy tale. You see this in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. So there's some people out there at that time and today just saying, it's all make-believe. It's all fake. It's all a fairy tale. Peter says, nope. How? Why? He says, we were eyewitnesses. The second is they say there's not going to be any justice The world's just going to go on as it always has. And Peter says, really? And he gives examples from the flood and from Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 2 is a heavy and difficult chapter. That is, again, if you're like, I like Jesus because he isn't judgy. Just read the New Testament and you'll change your mind. You'll either love Jesus because you see his consistency or you'll go, oh, Jesus is pretty judgy. Uh, Peace. Or three. They say, where is the Jesus that you worship? He's not going to return, and this is where chapter 3 enters in with the promise of his triumphant return. But there's something interesting that, that Peter highlights for God's people that I think has been true throughout time. That much of the twisting of the core of faith is this. Uh, when the truth of God comes against greed and sensuality, when, when the truth of God interacts with and confronts our love of money and stuff or our desire to do what we want with our bodies. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Then and now, many love the idea of Jesus, the idea of salvation, until it confronts our idols. And then and now, it seems as though this is a perpetual issue. Two of those key things, again, are our wallets and our bodies. That we love what Jesus has to say about so many things until it gets personal. I read another quote this week uh, that before the truth sets you free, it often makes you miserable. If we're just creating Jesus in our image, it's not Jesus that we're worshiping, but ourselves. That's somebody else, not me. And what we're living in today is the self-expression and sexual revolution wave from the 60s. It's still at high tide today, and we're harvesting the fruit from that and what we see around gender and sexuality. And all I'm going to say here is this, that Peter in Scripture has severe warnings and examples from history of how God deals with humanity that continues to rebel. And that before we point the finger at the world, we first look in the mirror. Humbly and honestly, to see the ways in which we are not following the truth of God totally where we're resisting his honing, his softening, his challenge in our own lives, where there's greed or desires that are not alignment, in alignment with the kingdom of God. Then we let the reminders of judgment in the past and promise of judgment in the future shake and stir our own souls as we trust and wait. And we won't let this verse is awesome and horrible 2.22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, 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 sow is a needle-pulling thread. After washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Thank you, Peter. You give us two vivid images of disgusting things. But we need to have those things these metaphors imprinted on our mind when we deal with temptations in the world. And my hope is that we would let the story of Scripture orient us, ground us, and shape us. Reading through chapter 2, if, if you want a sobering experience, just read Second Peter again and again and again, especially chapter 2, again and again and again, and you'll be like, Whoa! okay. Uh, don't want to go that way. But then it brought to mind Psalm 19. And here's my prayer for us, that from the inward parts of our soul and these warnings, this would happen, that we would see this. David writes and says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward that we would let that truth shape and replace the temptations that we have. And another pathway we have out of temptation, both whether that's from the outside or from the inside, is living out of a trust which has its sight on the triumphant return of Christ. Chapter 3 details... He goes from the heretics to addressing how this is all going to be sorted out, which is a helpful way of saying no to temptation. Uh, And so I'm going to read through chapter 3, verse 1 through 13, and have just a little bit of a reflection on it as we go. He says, now this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. So Taylor Swift, haters going to hate. Peter, scoffers going to scoff. They will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Why hasn't it happened yet? Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's a lot there, most of which we won't cover. But here's what I hope we see. That God's patience is tied up in his promise. And that often when we see scripture about the second coming of Christ, we're more informed by, unfortunately, uh, the Left Behind series than the entirety of the story. 
and I'll just share. I wanted to go outside my normal and see what multiple people say on this text. And that's usually, you look at commentaries and all this stuff. So I went to one well-known pastor, not going to bring him up because I don't, his name, because I don't want to be divisive and offend, okay? You want to know, let's get coffee, okay? And here's what I saw. I'm reading through his teaching on this, and I'm like, all right, all right, all right. And he gets to the one day as is a thousand years, and he goes, God is outside of our time. And I go, yeah, clearly. And so God, in, in the way we see things, is different. Yeah, sounds good. And so time, as we know it, is a relative construct, and God here is saying that he's outside of it, and he's patient. Yeah, cool, sweet. Next paragraph. So let's go to Hosea, where it says two days will happen, and on the third he'll rise. And if we look at that, then we can see it's been about 2,000 years from the writing of Hosea. We're now in the third day, and I'm like, what? You're doing math with this equation, huh? And then when we see about the heavens melting with fervent heat, and we see all the nuclear power that's in the world, we can see that this is possible. If all the nuclear bombs go off at the same time, and I... What? That it all could burn and melt away, and this verse could come. And I'm like, Mm-mm. you just contradicted yourself. Yes, God's time is not our time, and His delay is for the purpose of more disciples being made. Like, that's clear. And I don't think that when Peter was writing this, he's like, man, I don't know how this is all going to happen. And then he's up in heaven and he's like, oh, nuclear bombs? Duh! Why didn't I know that? He's utilizing all of the imagery of the prophets here. He's recapitulating the story. He's drawing back on the flood. And what he's saying is that God will, yes, have a triumphant return in a cataclysmic event of which I don't think our minds fully can comprehend or understand. We try to with like, well, if this is happening over there and we have this amount of power over here, and maybe I'm agnostic on how in the nitty-gritty of exactly how this all happens and what exactly it looks like because Prescott High School, okay? (laughs) But in all of this, Peter is echoing Isaiah and other prophets to help the people of God in midst of peril and persecution, that their questions and ours would not go towards speculation, but seeing how God will settle it fully and finally one day. That God will, in the imagery here, is of a refiner's fire removing out dross, taking out anything unclean, unpure, that would uh, soil what the the artisan is wanting to make in his world, exposing, revealing, removing, restoring in a similar fashion of Noah. But instead of seeing that, what we often do is speculate and postulate on all of the possibilities. I just don't think that served God's people well. I know of a one local counselor who said that she could have a support group for all of the people that were negatively affected by the left behind movie of the 1970s, and fear of which was fostered in people's lives in that. I just don't think that type of speculation is helpful, and trying to connect timelines and all that is helpful, because what Peter was doing for God's people then 
And what I believe this is meant to do for God's people today is root us and ground us to say no to temptation, yes to trust, and following Jesus today with the right kind of hope. If your eschatology, that is a study of end times, leaves you with more and kind of dizzy and oriented and looking more at newspapers than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we have a problem. If you're more formed by Christian fiction around all of this, by Hosea and Joel and Amos and Revelation, we have an issue. And so, again, my hope is that we could see the promise of the triumphant return and let that shape life today. I was listening to a book this week, and the author gave the illustration of when you are learning to drive, what he was taught is aim high. That is, you look ahead. You're constantly looking ahead. If you're right in front of you, you're going to be a bad driver. That's just not how the physics and mechanics of it all work. And in a similar fashion, that's how we are to live life today, by looking ahead with the right kind of perspective to this promise that Jesus is in control, Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is going to return, Jesus will make all things new, and we don't know when we don't know exactly how the mechanics of it all are going to work out other than the fact that Jesus wins and it's going to be obvious. And that promise and that hope then shapes life today. Here's one of the things that's often missed when we talk about eschatology is how it actually impacts life today. So I want to take you on a very quick journey. I'm probably going to cut some things. We'll just start with Jesus and then we'll go back to Peter. And I'm cutting out Corinthians and Titus and James and Hebrew. <laughs> Hebrews. But if you want them, I got them. This is one of my favorite things in all scripture. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus is resurrected. The apostles are like, great. Now the kingdom is going to come fully. So they had come together. They asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Okay, Jesus, but have you heard about the blood moon cycle? Huh? <laughs> Lunar calendar? Uh, yeah, okay. But, promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth. So Jesus goes, I'm going to return. Here's a promise. You have power to live here and now. Go be witnesses. So yes, focus. Triumphant return. There's a hope. There's a promise. There's a future. There's glory. Yes! Be about his business now. Peter, in his letter, and again, I could go 1 Corinthians 15, Titus chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 10, almost 1 Thessalonians 5, this whole section about the day of the Lord. And every single time the writers of Scripture give us a vision of the future, it is to impact living today. Yes, you look ahead, but it shapes what you're doing now. Again, verse 11, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Let's jump down to verse 14. Therefore, since he gave this whole beautiful, crazy, cataclysmic image of the apocalypse and what's going to happen, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace 
Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. I love this honesty, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them in these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. So Jesus, help us to see you, the power that you have given us in salvation, the promise you have given us with one another. Lord, the strength to say no to temptation and the vision to keep our eyes on you in all things. Lord, help us to hear what we need to hear and anything else to set it aside and leave it behind. So as we respond now, would you sort through our hearts? Remind us of who we are in you and who we are becoming in you. And give us the courage and the hope and the joy in remembering that you, Jesus, have come to us with good news and you will return one day and make all things new. And in this in-between, we ask for your help. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.